Hello all, David Oakes here and welcome to this special third season of Trees A Crowd. Hopefully you all know the deal by now, but for the uninitiated, I'm spending the year exploring the weird and wonderful botanical and folklorical stories that make our native trees so incredibly splendiferous. Why am I doing this? Well, partly because I think trees are sexy. But mostly, I'm doing this because I want to provide an opportunity. For I believe award-winning folk singer-songwriter Bella Hardy is wasted as one of our country's leading balladeers, and should most certainly quit to become a TV commercial jingle composer like Leslie Phillips's character in the 61 movie Raising the Wind. My evidentiary proof for this bold and bizarre assertion, may I present Exhibit A. Uprooting the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. This week, obscure introductions aside, I'm going to start looking at our buckthorns. There are three buckthorns. The common buckthorn, often simply referred to as the buckthorn, the alder buckthorn, and the sea buckthorn. But despite sharing the same name, our three thuckborns are plants from two distinct families and from three completely different genera. To say they're the same is like saying that I'm related to both David Attenborough and Lieutenant General Sir Hildebrand Oakes. I am not related to either. So this week I'm going to be looking at the two buckthorns that are at least members of the same family the Ramnaceae. They are tree number 29 and tree number 30. The common buckthorn, Ramnus cathartica, and the older buckthorn, Frangela alnus. On first inspection, both of these buckthorns are incredibly similar. Both are low-growing shrubs with small creamy green flowers that attract the same kinds of beetles and the same kinds of flies, and they both possess the same kind of small, shiny, black-slash-purple berries, or, to be botanically correct, droops. When unripe, these droops used to be used to produce a thick green dye that was used in the production of an artist's pigment known as sap green. Since the medieval times, the berries were reduced to a thick green syrup and then sold to craftsmen, calligraphers and painters in the most unique of containers, in a pig's bladder. As such, the colour also goes by a less pleasant name than sap green. It's known as bladder green. But when ripe, these black-slash-purple fruits both produce seeds which are toxic to most mammals. This has led to the common buckthorn's other name, the purging buckthorn, due to the laxative effects produced when eaten by unfortunate humans. Fortunately, however, the droops are not poisonous to birds, and they usually regurgitate the toxic seeds, assisting the buckthorns in distributing the plant far and wide. These two buckthorns are so similar in appearance, in fact, that early botanists, including the oft-mentioned in this podcast Carl Linnaeus, had them classified into the one genus Ramnus. It wasn't until 1768 that Philip Miller, an English botanist and gardener who really didn't like Linnaeus's form of plant classification at all, placed the alder buckthorn into its own genus, Frangula, which comes from the Latin frangio, meaning to break, and it is in reference to the plant's brittle wood. However, for the record, Miller moved it across into its own brittle bracket, not because of this attribute, but because of its flowers. The flowers of the alder buckthorn possess a corolla of five petals and five sepals, rather than the common buckthorn's four. 
They also have flowers that are hermaphroditic, with each flower possessing both functional male and female reproductive parts. This means that in an environment lacking in pollinators, the flowers of the alder buckthorn, unlike the common buckthorn, possess a fallback plan and can pollinate themselves. The anthers, these are the organs that are covered in pollen, think of those bits on lilies that stain clothes, they lean over after reaching full maturity and deposit pollen on the stigma with one final opportunistic offering of seed before the end of the season. But the quickest way to tell our two buckthorns apart is that the common buckthorn possesses viciously sharp spines, hence the name buckthorn, whereas the older buckthorn does not, preferring instead to be led with a little hairy down. And the dark green leaves of each, although rounded and about the same in size, are finely serrated on the common buckthorn, while the margins of the alder buckthorn are not. Now, we often speak of the threat of invasive aliens in the British Isles, plants, or indeed animals, that are introduced from abroad and have a destructive effect upon our native wild landscapes. For example, I recently thrashed my way through forests of uncontrolled non-native rhododendron in the Connemara National Park. These plants, having presumably escaped from the botanical gardens at nearby Kylemore Abbey, can be found growing in dense tunnels that consume the roadways and are all the way up the Irish mountainsides. This has led to a number of incidents of mountain rescue being called to save even experienced walkers from impenetrable forests of rhododendron. Interestingly, Rhododendron pontica was originally, during one of the interglacial periods, a native plant to the British Isles. But it never made its way back in after the last glacial retreat, something all our buckthorns and all our 56-ish native species did. Ish. Anyway, whereas we can easily imagine the threat of invasive aliens upon our own countryside, it can often be surprising when you hear tales of our native species being problematic to overseas habitats. I mean, how could they? They are just so kind and huggable and lovable. But this is what has happened with both of our buckthorns in North America. Originally having been imported in the 1880s as ornamentals, the plants receive animosity now due to the toxicity of the droops, which grazing animals, as I've already mentioned, would do well to avoid. But the problem unfortunately goes much deeper than that. In North America, our buckthorns leaf out in early spring. They produce a dense canopy, well before many native North American species get their acting gear, and hold on to them for far longer. As such, any tree or wildflower, unfortunate enough to lie beneath this sun-blocking canopy, doesn't stand a chance of reaching maturity. They dominate the florist floor, and they smother it, much like the ex-native rhododendron in Connemara. The leaves and fruit of the buckthorn are also incredibly high in nitrogen, which is great for regenerating European soil, but in North America has proven to cause a problem when present in collaboration with another non-native alien, the European earthworm. Earthworms break down the nitrogen-rich leaf and fruit litter from the buckthorns incredibly quickly, exposing the bare soil to the elements and destroying in the process any native fungi that the indigenous plants need to survive. This organically rich soil is now primed for further buckthorn seeds to germinate, which in turn provides more leaf litter for the earthworms, which in turn provides soil for more buckthorns, which provides more food for more earthworms, which provides etc. ad infinitum, the perfect invasive alien feedback loop. All of this combined means that both of our native buckthorns are now classified as an invasive species in a number of American and Canadian counties. The Woodland Trust's mantra rings true. When planting, it is always worth considering 
right tree, right place, gets you the right results. That was Darren Moorcroft, the CEO of the Woodland Trust. Thank you, Darren. My pleasure, David. Right, so if North America is where buckthorn shouldn't grow, where should it? Our common buckthorn favours calcareous soils, that's chalky bits to you and me, and can often be found growing wild in hedgerows. Whereas alder buckthorn, though it is said to prefer acidic soils and as such can be found clinging closely to acid bogs, isn't too fussy about where it grows so long as it is wet. In fact, it is called the alder buckthorn because of it often being found alongside the water and swamp-loving alder, another native species which we will be discussing in a couple of months' time. But one of the places alder buckthorn can be found growing very happily alongside common buckthorn is in the damp alkaline soil of the Wiccan Fens. Wiccan Fen in Cambridgeshire is a tiny slither of the once huge area of wetland which covered the lowlands of Lincolnshire, Cambridgeshire, Suffolk and Norfolk. Wetland habitats are simply stunning for biodiversity. They support 40% of the world's plants and animals and every year a further 200 brand new species are discovered in freshwater wetlands alone. They are also fantastic at sequestering carbon, with, for example, soggy peatland bogs storing twice as much carbon as all of the world's forests combined. And they do all of this whilst giving human beings protection from changing tides and a natural way of purifying our water. If rainforests are the lungs of the planet, then wetlands are the lifeblood. That was James Robinson, the Head of Conservation at the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust. Thank you, James. My pleasure, David. Anyway, most of Wiccan Fen has been drained across the centuries to make the land usable for human agricultural endeavours, with only 1% of it remaining still today as its original wetland habitat. But one key reason Wiccan Fen survived at all was because of the wood it provided to one of mankind's most explosive industries. Alder buckthorn is one of the best ingredients for making gunpowder. Gunpowder is made by mixing three things. Sulphur, saltpeter, which is potassium nitrate, and carbon. And arguably the best source of carbon is alder buckthorn charcoal. Willow and alder provide good alternatives, but the incredibly steady burn rate of the buckthorn charcoal made it ideal not just for the powder, but also for use as an extremely precise time fuse. Now, before we get lost in the smoke-filled haze of Napoleonic rifle fire, it's important to remember that as well as for the purposes of warfare, gunpowder was used to fuel the Industrial Revolution via quarrying, mining, tunnel construction, etc., etc. So, William Morris and technophobes aside, one can argue that this use for alder buckthorn isn't entirely a bad thing. So let's leave Wiccan Fen for the moment. If you get in a car and drive a couple of hours south, you'll arrive in Kent, where there is another wetland habitat full of both of our buckthorns. Faversham is regarded as the cradle of the British gunpowder industry. Here in the 18th century, the Ore Gunpowder Works had three mills providing gunpowder to the East India Company. The site was perfectly situated in the wet woodlands of the North Kent marshes. Willow and buckthorn beds were easily harvested for the charcoal, whilst the mills could be set upon the dammed river network and provide power to the site. 
If you walk a couple of miles from the gunpowder works, you'll find another wonderful wetland habitat, or marshes, which is overseen by the Kent Wildlife Trust. I'm giving shout-outs to all of the British conservation charities this week, it seems. Or marshes is famous for its breeding, for its migratory, and for its overwintering bird life. But that wasn't always the case. On the 2nd of April 1916, it was the site of the worst explosion in the entire history of the British explosives industry. A stockpile of TNT destined for the war effort caught light. The initial explosion left a crater 150 feet wide and 15 feet deep, and more than 100 people lost their lives in the process. One account of the accident said, Five of the National Guard who were on guard were killed instantly. Of one... Nothing but his rifle was ever found. Men 100 yards away were blown to pieces, whilst others had all their clothes blown off them yet were unhurt. And some were blown into dikes and were wringing wet and shivering with shock. But despite this loss of human life, our nation's requirement for explosives and for gunpowder in particular remained as voracious as ever. We simply couldn't grow enough of the stuff. Throughout the Industrial Revolution, As international trade became more prevalent, more and more of our gunpowder-producing buckthorn was shipped to the UK from mainland Europe. Now this, understandably, led to quite a quandary during the First World War. How can you source the key ingredient for your gunpowder when it's being produced so close to the enemy? In response to this, the War Office launched a different kind of dig-for-victory offensive and published an appeal in 1915 in the Gardener's Chronicle. We would be glad to know of any supplies of Ramnus frangula in this country. Estate owners who have plantations of Ramnus and are willing to sell should communicate with the Secretary, War Office, Whitehall. But Buckthorn is not all fire and brimstone. Rather, it's fire and brimstones. The family characteristic of being unpalatable at best and toxic at worst makes our two species of buckthorn attractive to only a select few invertebrates, but amongst them is one of the most famous, a species for whose caterpillars nothing other than the leaves of the Ramnaceae will suffice, the brimstone butterfly. The magnificent sulphur-yellow-wings of the male brimstone butterfly make the many a Lepidopterist's favourite. In fact, due to the prevalence of these butterflies in Britain and the bright yellow colour of the wings, It has led many to claim that these yellow wings provided the etymological origin for the butter in our English name, butterflies. Although others are of the belief that the name came about because the insects like to land on butter churns or on milk pails, which has led to an alternate German name, the Milchdieb, milk thief. Either way, I'm not really a lepidopterist. That hat well and truly rests upon my pater's pate, but when I do fancy a flutterby, I do return to the family nest. Famed for its wildflowers and for its butterflies, I went to primary school a stone's throw from Martin Down in Hampshire. It's a stunning wild meadow landscape that was supposedly one of David Bellamy's favourites, and it served its inspiration for Thomas Hardy's Trantridge in Tess of the D'Urbervilles. At the right time of year, it is brimming with butterflies and teeming with colour. Purple hair streaks, orange tips, common blues, and almost always to be found resting atop our buckthorns are our shocking yellow brimstones. So that's two of our buckthorns, with a third coming in a week's time. I've nothing more to add other than the usual review, subscribe, Patreon, etc., and to say thank you for listening. 
A special thanks also to Olivier Award-winning Ian Barty Bartholomew for voicing the historic Ramnus extracts, to Darren over at the Woodland Trust, and to James at the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust. For more information on both of those amazing organisations, check out the links over on treesacrowd.fm. And I will leave you with James to end this week's episode with a final vox pop and a little tip for where to head to find this week's tree. The older Bluckthorn is one of my favourite trees and it grows at WWT's site, a Wellney on the used washes. Off to Wellney you go. Bye-bye. Uploading the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the bridge.